Good evening and welcome to Taiwan This Week. ICRT's roundup of the top news stories from around Taiwan. Today we'll be covering the last seven days. I'm Keith Manconi of ICRT News. Joining me in studio today, once again, two weeks in a row, we have Yuan Ming Chao, who once again is the social media editor at the China Post. Yuan Ming, great to have you back. It's nice to be here. And happy to welcome back once again Bill Stanton, who is the former director of the American Institute in Taiwan and the current director at the Center for Asia Policy at National Tsinghua University. Did I get your title right this time? Absolutely. Nice. All right. It's a complicated title, so I'm proud of myself I got it right. On the show today, U.S. President Donald Trump made another call this week, this time not with President Tsai Ing-wen, but with Chinese President Xi Jinping. But the content of that call still has some pretty big implications for Taiwan and what stance the U.S. will take in dealings with cross-strait relations. So that's going to be just about the whole first half of the show. Then in the second half, Taiwan's tourism industry is back in the spotlight for all the wrong reasons after yet another tour bus crash. This one reportedly Taiwan's deadliest road accident since October of 1986. We'll take a look at some of the safety concerns related to this latest incident, uh, as well as where the industry is headed in light of uh, encouraging figures, kind of on the other side of things, uh, that were published just last week. And uh, just to make absolutely sure we do not end on a high note, we can't have that, bird flu is spreading throughout Hualien, Tainan, as well as counties in central Taiwan. We will round out today's show speaking with a few health officials who are going to tell us everything we've ever wanted to know about Taiwan's favorite recurring pathogenic virus. But before we get to any of that, uh, I feel like we are leaving out one of the plagues. Uh, there's always one of those plagues that I miss. Uh, what is that? Uh, uh, we have pestilence. Oh, drought. Yes. Uh, let's give a quick update on the maybe drought coming our way. Don't want to alarm everybody. It's early days. We could see some rain soon. Hard to say. Uh, you know, we're talking about the weather in Taiwan. So really, we are not going to make any predictions whatsoever today. But we have been seeing heretofore below average rainfall across Taiwan for the past several months. Now the Water Resources Agency is set to convene a meeting to discuss first stage water rationing. I believe first stage would just mean turning down the pressure on the pipe. So we're not necessarily talking about actually shutting off uh, water, as we saw two years ago, where we kind of had rolling shutoffs in various parts of the island. So just to get everybody caught up, we talked about this a little bit last week, but to get everybody caught up, uh, water reserves at the Shimen Reservoir and at Nanhua and Tsungwen Reservoirs in southern Taiwan were down to less than 60% of their capacity as of Wednesday. So if we were to see some kind of water rationing, it is likely to affect first and foremost Taoyuan and Limco, Banqiao, and Xinjiang districts. Uh, so mostly we're looking at the north up first. After that, uh, the kind of second places that might be on the chopping block are Miaoli, Taichung, Jiayi, and Tainan. So I just wanted to hit that story real quick, just so if, you know, your, 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 your tap starts acting funny, you'll know why that might be. Just thought that we would throw that out there as a public service announcement. But we have a whole lot to cover, so we're just going to run on through up next, we are moving on to the main event for the first half of the show. This week, the Trump White House released its sequel to The Cull. But like many, the major sequel uh, just kind of lost some of its sparkle, some of its excitement from the original. So what happened exactly? Uh, last Thursday, U.S. time, U.S. President Donald Trump and Chinese President Xi Jinping held a phone conversation. In this phone conversation, Trump reaffirmed Washington's one-China policy, 
According to a White House statement, here's what they had to say about it. Quote, President Trump agreed at the request of President Xi to honor our one China policy. And ever since then, folks have been picking over every comma and every word of that statement. So I'm sure we can do some of that here, too, today, if we're in the mood for it. Of course, this is is significant because, as we've discussed, Trump had thrown the United States cross-strait policy into doubt during the transition period. First, when he held a phone call with President Tsai. That would be the call part one. Then later, uh, when he suggested that the one-China policy might be up for some form of negotiation. He definitely didn't use those words, but many people read that into his statement. Many have pointed out that uh, this latest call between Trump and Xi may not have even been possible without the positive affirmation of the one China policy. So for a lot of people, they see this as, you know, Trump took a very hard line coming into the administration before he took office. This is him perhaps backing away from that line. Some people go so far as to say that this is a major concession, potentially with no upshot uh, for the Trump campaign, and they see it as a sign that he's really backing down in a way that heavily benefits China and doesn't really carry through on the more direct, more muscular tone that he was striking during the transition. Uh, I'm going to let Bill start us off on this conversation. What do you see here? Well, you know, President Trump has been rather inconsistent on many issues, including on China. I think um, he was using the term one China policy very loosely. And when he talked about it as a bargaining chip, I think that was misinterpreted by many as meaning um, that we were somehow going to change our diplomatic recognition of China. In fact, the problem is arises from the ambiguity that um, – China, what China means by its one China principle and what we've always meant by our one China policy are quite different. Uh, And in a way, we were reaffirming our, as he used specifically the the possessive pronoun, our one China policy. Mm -hmm. As Um, opposed to the China's one China principle. Right. Our one China policy has always been that we acknowledge the Chinese position, there's one China, but that's never been the U.S. position. The U.S. position has been to recognize that China is the sole government, uh, representative government of China. But we've never taken a position on the sovereignty of Taiwan. Uh, And that was made very clear in the six assurances that uh, were delivered by Ambassador Lilly on behalf of President Reagan uh, back in um, 1982. So I think one of the problems is that Maybe because of a lack of good advice, uh, lack of clarity, there's been some confusion. Um, The real question is at this point is now that they've got off to a basically they're on an even keel, so to speak, despite all that back and forth and the confusion that resulted. I think the big question is where is the administration going uh, with regard to China? Because in general – as opposed to the way he's handled uh, Russia, he's taken a very tough line on China. It's hard to see where that's going. And Tillerson also, in his confirmation hearings and subsequently, has taken a tough line on the South China Sea, for example, also on the protection uh, defense of the Diaoyutai Islands. 
the whole administration is confusing because there are some people in the administration who are real hardliners about China. They would include uh, Peter Navarro, the former professor at the University of California, Irvine, who's written very inflammatory kind of books like The Coming uh, the coming war with China, and uh, I think he was talking about a trade war. Maybe I haven't read his book, but he, again, I've, more ambiguity. We don't even know what kind of war he's talking about. Well, in my case, it's just because I haven't had time to read it, and not <laughs> particularly interested in it. But while he's got people like that, and Steve Bannon, and had before Mike Flynn, he's also got all of these people who are deeply indebted to China and are noted for their long-standing positive relations. He picked as his Secretary of Treasury Steve Mnuchin, who for 17 years was the managing partner of Goldman Sachs, which has made a fortune in China and has top ties to all the key people. Uh, in the leadership of the Communist Party in China and their children, the princelings. Um, uh, then you have uh, Wilbur Ross, who's been named to be the Secretary of Commerce, who in an interview in 2015 in Forbes uh, made it clear that uh, he was concerned about the TPP, not because it was a bad deal for America, but because it was a bad deal for China. Because he was afraid that if things could be made more cheaply in Malaysia and Vietnam, China wouldn't be able to compete. So he was worried about the consequences for the Chinese economy. Mm. And subsequently, he was a recipient of a $500 million investment in one of his funds from the uh, China Investment Corporation, which is state-owned. So whether he's going to divest from that is unclear. Mm. Meanwhile, you have other people who now, Stephen Schwartzman, who set up the Schwartzman Fund, the scholarship, to send young Americans to study Chinese in China and had the goal of 10,000 Chinese speakers. Stephen Schwartzman, who runs Blackstone, which is heavily invested in by the Chinese and the Chinese leadership, um, he's been named to head up the Council of Economic Advisors. So these are people who, by instinct, by livelihood, and by inclination, are going to be very pro-China. So where does this all lead us? I have no idea. All right. <laughs> we were looking for clarity, and we got, well, we got some names, which is, uh, which is a start. It's definitely a good start. Yuan Ming, so we're hearing there a note of uncertainty. We don't know where this is all going, uh, despite, you know, of course, that one extra note of clarity about uh, the Trump administration. They will honor the, their one-China policy. What is this uh, last week told you? Well, I think um, that sta- that phone call, you know, uh, there were a lot of people in Washington circles who were breathing a sigh of relief um, after that was uttered. But I think um, from the discussions, the pu- at least the public discussions, um, there's still a lot of confusion about what the U.S. policy orientation is in Asia. Um, and we've seen, you know, uh, that, that executive order uh, of uh, of the U.S. backing out of the TPP, and I think that there's a a lot of um, implications to that about uh, how the U.S.'s uh, traditional allies in in this region are feeling about um, what that will entail in terms of future cooperation or uh, how the U.S. is dealing with China. But uh, returning to the the interactions between the U.S. and China, uh, maybe. Uh, if you look at um, uh, the rhetoric before 
uh, Trump became president, and now that he is, um, the the signs of you know. Uh, naming China as a currency manipulator, I, I think they've toned down the rhetoric a bit, um, but uh, it, it remains to be seen, you know, how they will use that as an issue, and mm. if that will become an issue involving other countries as well, mm-hmm. yeah, th- if the U.S. opens itself uh, to to that. All right, so even more question marks for us to think about right there. I want to bring into the conversation, though, a guy who's been waiting patiently on the line for us, uh, Chris Bodine, who we have had on the show once before. He is, once again, the acting news editor for Greater China for the Associated Press. Uh, and Chris, what I'm hoping you can do, you know, given uh, your location in Beijing, is provide the perspective from Beijing. Uh, I mean, obviously, we're over here in Taiwan, and we're thinking of all of this uh, very much from a Taiwan or a U.S. perspective. What does this look like from Beijing? Uh, a lot of people were saying that uh, the move that Trump took was absolutely necessary for any kind of dialogue to happen between Xi Jinping and Donald Trump. Is uh, is that what it looks like from uh, Beijing? And, 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 and further, does this look like a big victory for uh, China's government from Beijing? Uh, yeah, I, I think there's absolutely no question that, that China regarded uh, the phone call it got from Trump as a, a victory and a, a sort of a climb down for the U.S. administration, uh, and, a, and very much a vindication of China's uh, sort of wait-and-see, fairly low-key uh, approach to Trump that it's uh, taken ever since he was elected and made that, that phone call to President Tsai. Um, at the same time, they're also uh, anticipating uh, further turbulence in the relationship coming up, uh, particularly uh over the South China Sea, where we may see more uh, freedom of navigation uh, missions by the U.S. Navy very soon near those those Chinese-controlled islands. Uh, just in recent days, we had an unsafe encounter, as it was described by the U.S. military, between a, an American plane and a and a Chinese uh, one, and um, China also uh, reacted relatively strongly when. Uh, Secretary of Defense uh, Mattis made his visits to Japan and South Korea, uh, the first in South Korea, uh, where they reaffirmed their commitment to the uh, the FAD uh, air defense system. China is very much against that, seeing it as uh, a threat to its, uh, it, its ability to control uh, and, uh, and, and, and avoid surveillance. It has to do with radar systems that can peer into uh, northeastern China. Uh, and then again, when Mattis was in Japan and he reaffirmed that the uh, the Dalyu, or as China calls them, the Dalyu Islands, uh, Taiwan, Dalyu, Taiwan, Japan, of course, Senkaku, that those fell under the, the U.S.-Japan Mutual Defense Treaty. And um, China has always ob- objected to this treaty. Uh, and then when it, when it uh, pertains anything along those lines, it pertains to the, the islands, it uh, it is going to make a very strong reassertion of its uh, claim to sovereignty over that. So I would say that uh, yeah, they they considered this a, a success, uh, and that their uh, their sort of keeping their powder dry approach uh, has been correct thus far, uh, anticipating that Trump would probably say some some wild things uh, against the background of the the generally hardline position that that a lot of new U uh, S administrations take. When they when they first come into power, when they're campaigning, uh, in fact, um, and um, yeah, so so the the decision not to uh, react too strongly, overreact uh, was was very strong. Add to that uh, mention of the the 
uh, Trans-Pacific Partnership, uh, that's been, uh, I would I would say, I think it's fair to say that that's been welcomed in Beijing uh, and uh, seen as an opportunity for Beijing to take a, an even bigger role in global trade. Uh, they've been discussing um, their own initiatives in the region, particularly to connect Asia to Europe via this uh, One Belt, One Road uh, initiative. And then also um, uh, talking about uh, uh, the... Um, uh, some other regional uh, Asian regional free trade agreement uh, that that might uh, see China taking really the, the leadership position. Um, so uh, overall, yeah, they they they're pleased with recent developments, but they're uh, they're keeping a wary eye out for for further problems in the relationship. Just assuming that uh, Trump continues with uh, something of a the conciliatory approach that we've seen over the last week or so. How, how, how do you see China responding? I mean, you kind of outlined some of the avenues uh, where we're likely to see action. Do, do, do you see them taking a somewhat more aggressive line, uh, you know, in the South China Sea or, or in some of these uh, 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 trade dealings that uh, they're trying to move forward? Are they going to try to take advantage of a somewhat more reticent Trump? I, I think they probably will. I think they, uh, again, they saw this, uh, the phone call and the reaffirmation of the, the one China policy. As a as a climb down, as a as a sign that uh, Trump's a bit of a paper tiger, as as the the the, the phrase that they use, and that um, he doesn't really have a strategy, he doesn't really uh, know what the, America's goals are in Asia, and this opens up more and more space for China to uh, pursue its own agenda, and that could be further uh, militarization uh, in the South China Sea, it could be a more aggressive approach to Japan and, and the Daewoo Islands. It could be uh, retaliation against South Korea, uh, commercial retaliation, sorry, commercial retaliation in, in specifically against South Korea over THAAD. And then, um, and then from a global perspective, uh, China rushing in to uh, assert itself in international lending institutions. We saw Xi Jinping gave, gave a much uh, ballyhooed speech in, at Davos, uh, casting China as the uh, the the you know the leading spokesman for for free trade and globalization. Uh, now a lot of people dispute whether uh, that's borne out by the facts, but it seems like definitely they are not going to be sitting back um, and and let let this, these opportunities slip by them. Hmm. Let's uh, let's refocus the conversation back on Taiwan. Uh, looking at cross strait relations, what are the ways that you think that this reaction from Trump might? affect uh, China's approach to Taiwan and cross-strait relations? Uh, yeah, that's a good one there. I mean, people in the Taiwan Affairs Office in Beijing have sort of intimated that uh, they may be taking firmer action against, against Taiwan. Um, they may also be trying to simply do a uh, sort of an end run around the, the Thai administration, uh, given that they seem to be losing uh, losing faith that she'll ever really come around to the uh, what they call the 92 consensus, recognizing that Taiwan and China are part of a single China, with uh, each side having their own de- definition of that. That is, that's been Beijing's bottom line, and uh, doesn't seem to be, uh, nothing they've done so far has been able to move the Thai administration on that. So there could be more um, uh, diplomatic uh, pressure, winning off uh, Taiwan's remaining allies, excluding Taiwan from the already uh, short uh, list of International gatherings that it's willing to that that China is uh, sort of willing to allow Taiwan to attend without using its its clout to exclude it. Um, 
and and then further courting of uh, the, the Taiwanese public and uh, and the, the KMT and the opposition. Uh, recently, they uh, announced that there would be more sort of uh, advantageous policies extended toward Taiwanese who want to come to China to live, work, and study. And um, they they seem to be uh, making that sort of direct appeal. So, yeah, I think they they again they see Taiwan as uh, uh, sorry. They again they see Trump as you know, not really having a, a a coherent policy toward Taiwan or the region. Um, although you know there are possibilities of you know stronger uh, U.S.-Taiwan security co- cooperation in, in in areas. There are uh, uh, even the possibility of of uh, something something that seemingly innocuous but could be significant, such as uh, the posting of U.S. Marine security guards at uh, the American Institute in Taipei. And um, so uh, China can be expected to respond to these things, and that may that may uh, uh, you know embolden them further uh, in their efforts to uh, to bring Taiwan around to their to uh, the the agenda that they laid out for it. Hmm. Uh, I'm going to toss the same question over to Bill. Uh, I, I, I see you're doodling there. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm hoping that that face is not a portrait of me. Uh, you are facing me right now, but I'll, I'll, I'll assume it's uh, somebody else you know because it's not terribly flattering. But anyway, in any event, that's not what the show's about. Tossing it over to Bill, uh, do you see the same potential there uh, for, uh, you know, given Trump's, mm, I'll, I'll use the same word, incoherent approach to regional affairs over here? Does that uh, give China a lot more discretion, a lot more leeway in how they want to formulate their approach to Taiwan? I don't think necessarily that's the case. Um, For one thing, as Chris kind of noted, uh, you know, uh, Xi Jinping goes to Davos and talks about globalization. But one of the growing uh, bodies of opinion among foreign businessmen in uh, businesswomen, people, in China is that uh, China is basically fundamentally a mercantilist country. It doesn't support globalization only, it supports it only insofar as it meets uh, China's goals. But when it comes so far as they can get uh, IPR from other countries, so far as they can get investment from other countries, but it hasn't been an even playing field. That's reflected in the most recent AmCham survey that was done in Beijing, where 81% of American uh, businesses uh, who answered the poll said that they feel increasingly less welcome by China doing business there. It's also reflected uh, by the higher labor costs there, and a lot of people are moving out to other countries. Uh, but also, I think the the main thing is a feeling that it's become a very unbalanced relationship. This was true even before Trump was elected. I think whether Hillary Clinton or Trump was elected, it was clearly going to be a more difficult relationship between the United States and China. I think people on both sides of the aisle, both Democrats and Republicans, have long held the view that the relationship has been out of whack. Um, that it's all to China's advantage and the advantages to the U.S. are fairly minimal. Whether in terms of, for example, um, uh, Visa and MasterCard uh, can't fully operate on an independent basis in China, banks are not allowed to be solely owned by international corporations. They have to get a Chinese partner. Uh, these kinds of problems, practical problems at the ground level, are going to be in the way. So um, 
You know, I firmly believe in the long run that the Chinese economy needs the U.S. a lot more than the U.S. economy needs needs China. Um, and so that might circumscribe some of their actions with regard to Taiwan? Um, well, I think there are consequences for things it does. I think um, there have already been signals even before Trump came to office. For example, legislation that Obama approved in December of last year saying that uh, to raise the level of military contacts between the United States and Taiwan. Now, it's true that it's easiest for China to try to take it out on Taiwan. It's easier than trying to take it out uh, on the United States. Um, but, you know, it's a, it's a delicate balance because, as I say, I think right now the Chinese economy is increasingly in trouble. Uh, particularly right now, I think Xi Jinping has to worry about the party congress that's coming up. He values stability above all, which is why they're continuing to throw bad money after good money after bad money in these investments in state-owned enterprises that are losers. And he's got to be very careful about what he does that might be destabilizing. So I, I don't think all the cards are in China's hands by any means. Uh, Yuan Ming, let's uh, get you back in the conversation. Maybe you can help us out a little bit more on the domestic front because we haven't really looked at that too much yet. But uh, a lot of commentators have noted the fact that uh, Tsai Ing-wen, her administration, took a relatively muted uh, response to the call from last week. Now we're seeing a number of reports that are making it look a, a lot like she was aware of the call before it actually happened. Uh, and I've even seen some speculation that from the perspective of the Tsai administration, Having the Trump administration recognize uh, the one China policy isn't necessarily a bad thing for her because, uh, you know, if you if you look at some of the pressure that she was receiving from some of the pro-independence groups, they could use the possibility of increased support from the U.S. to call for more strident actions on her part, more Chen Shui-bian-esque uh, sort of behavior from her. You know, like if you got the backing of the U.S., if, if, if they're at our back, why are you not representing Taiwan more forcefully in cross-strait relations? So perhaps she's happy to see this de-escalate a little bit, get some of that pressure off. She can take a, a more leisurely approach to cross-strait relations. Do, w- w- what do you think of that argument and that commentary? Yeah, um, as you mentioned, um, the presidential office, they said that <clears throat> they were aware before the call took place um, that this would be conveyed. Um, and um, also, um, I think if you look at Tang Wen's administration and their their kind of no frills um, stance on cross strait relations, it's been you know very low key. Um, and no frills equals two words status quo, pretty much. If that even counts as two words, that might just be one word. I mean, <laughs> I mean, they, they've been quite patient and. Um, and I think, um, with regards to to you know the the one China policy, I mean, of course, um, it's imperfect, but I mean, it that structure has been, been in place for for decades. And if you if you put that on the negotiating negotiating table, then you know it brings a bunch of uncertainties. Um, so so this you know it it, it it you know things are on a more or less you know even keeled before the. The, the, the call made in December. Um, but on the domestic front, I think, um, you know, there's going to be uh, pressure and also, you know, more scrutiny about, you know, how U.S. and Taiwan 
are going to to move forward uh, if if this relationship can be strengthened. And um, a lot of this will also be looked at from economic point of view. If um, there will be um, progress in um, the bilateral potential free trade agreement between Taiwan and the United States, um, I'm sure um, because there's a political consensus in Taiwan that Taiwan needs to pursue free trade agreements. But um, you'll probably also now with the TPP, you know, gone, um, you'll you'll probably hear more voices uh, in Taiwan um, asking the uh, the Thai administration to 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 look at this RCEP that uh, China is pushing, and 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 also you know its actions on uh, U.S. Uh, Taiwan free trade agreement. Hmm. Yet another ball for everybody to keep their eyes on. Lot to keep in our heads these days. Lot to keep in our head. Well, uh, we are going to thank one last time uh, Chris Bodine for joining us on the show and laying all that out for us. Uh, Chris Bodine, thanks so much. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for having me. All right, and we have just one more note to hit before we hit the break for the show. This is a bit of news that unfolded yesterday, actually. And, well, as has been pointed out to me, it's a bit of an overblown piece of news, but since it involves... Bill Stanton, who we have in studio right now, we might as well overblow it ourselves. Why not? <laughs> we, have, we have the resources to do so. So what I'm talking about here is a little bit of news that the U.S. is set to post U.S. Marines at the new compound for the American Institute in Taiwan. Uh, for folks that do not follow American Institute in Taiwan news day by day, they have been working on a new compound that's uh, soon to be set up in Nehu District. I believe it is going to be opened in the middle of this year. And one of the things that has been sort of questioned is whether or not they are going to have a detail of Marines uh, at this new compound. Uh, Hopefully, Bill can correct me if I get any of this wrong, but my understanding is that um, most uh, embassies, U.S. embassies around the world, have some kind of uh, Marine presence there. It's just part of the culture, part of the protocol, kind of a... Uh, a thing that you expect when you go to an American embassy. And so this move would be seen as, you know, just a, a kind of a tip of the hat, a warming relations, normalizing relations to some degree, maybe a small degree uh, between the U.S. and Taiwan, if, you know, this was to go through. The latest reason that this is in the news is because a former AIT director, yet another former AIT director, uh, in this case, uh, Stephen Young, came out and he said that this is gonna happen uh so far ait itself the current director ken moy has not confirmed this actually i was uh, at a ait event on wednesday this was sort of a town hall meeting that brought together u.s citizens uh discussing various issues with ait officials it was off the record but since they've said this in other capacities as well i'll just repeat what they said when this question came up at this off the record meeting they said We are not going to comment (laughs) pretty much on whether or not we're going to have Marines at this new compound. Uh, So we we, we still don't know this for sure, but a lot of people are are, are taking a keen interest in this. So I'm going to toss things over to Bill. Uh, Bill, you were telling me uh, before we turned on these microphones that perhaps this is not as big a piece of news as some people are making it out to be. That's correct. From my perspective, the big news is that... um a project that began, we actually broke ground around February of 2010, so it's been seven years in progress, that we might finally have a new American Institute in Taiwan facility. And this is of enormous symbolic and 
and uh, and on the ground significance because this facility that we're building or have been building uh, the originally it was going to be about two hundred and twenty five million dollars which is enormous for an embassy. It's a uh, purpose-built one. In other words, some embassies in many small countries are just taken from a standard model, which is then modified uh, slightly. But this was a unique design built for Taiwan and for where it's going to be located in Nehu. And it's now estimated to cost at least probably $300 million. This represents a huge investment by the U.S. government in Taiwan. And it's of enormous symbolic importance because it will, as far as I know, since the British consulate was in Kaohsiung years ago, this will be the first and only time that another country has built a purpose-built representative office rather than renting an office in an office building. It will actually be an office designed to represent the United States in Taiwan. So the news is, if it's true that it's going to be completed in the summer, other people have told me it might be the fall or maybe even later in the year. Mm-hmm. This is the significant story. Whether there's a small detail of Marines, Steve Young says there is. The fact that he mentioned it when public with it, that might even kill the deal. Who knows? Mm. Because the things we do uh, from a military perspective, people are very sensitive about them. And... You know, normally they do things very quietly. Mm -hmm. I mean, we have all kinds of military contacts, but we don't publicize them all the time. Mm -hmm. So um, I think the focus on the Marines is a little bit misdirected. Uh, For such a major facility, such an expensive facility, you do need a guard force. Mm -hmm. And because there will be perhaps some sensitive materials there, you need a U.S. government defense force of some kind to look after it. Mm -hmm. Whether that's civilian officials or it's Marines, you do need somebody to look after the facility. Mm. Well, for the sake of those Marines, I kind of do hope that it becomes a job opening just because I I have a friend who served in the Marines and he said that those consular posts were just about the best thing you could get. It's very difficult to get in the program. The Marines uh, who get into the uh, guard program are among the best they have, who they're tightly monitored and they have to reach high standards of qualification so that when they're out and about, and if they say they're a U.S. Marine, they they're, they make a good representation mm-hmm. of the United States. But they're also good for embassy morale. Generally, they have a Marine house. There's often a TGIF mm-hmm. to have a drink with them. And Marines be- are generally fun people to hang out with. Is- They're fun people to <laughs> hang out with, and it's a focal point for social activities in any uh, U.S. office overseas. In fact, in places as odd as Beirut or uh, Pakistan, you would get all kinds of Americans from outside and foreigners who are from allied countries who would come in to enjoy Friday night with the Marines. All right. Well, since we had you, we had to bring it up thought that that was, you know, that probably the most little uplifting piece of news we've had so far today. And uh, I'm going to warn you guys, probably the most uplifting piece of news we're going to have. So hold on to that if you can. That is it for the first half of the show. When we return, 
You'll see what I mean in a second. We're talking about bus crashes and bird flu. Oh, my. Sorry, guys. Uh, but stay tuned for all of that. I swear, uh, if, if you're good throughout the rest of the show, you get a lollipop at the end. So something to look forward to. Look forward to all that and more when we return to Taiwan this week. Welcome back to Taiwan This Week, ICRT's weekly roundup of news from around Taiwan. I'm Keith Menconi, joined by Yuan Ming Chao and Bill Stanton. Jumping back in, it's been a tragic week for many families in Taiwan, and just a plain bad week for Taiwan's tourism industry. On Monday evening, a tour bus carrying elderly Taiwanese flipped on its side, killing 33 people and injuring 11. The accident, uh, as reports have it, occurred as the bus was traveling in the slow lane on the exit ramp connecting the Changwei Shui Memorial Freeway and the Formosa Freeway in Nangang District. The way that it's uh, I've seen it described is basically the bus lost control as it was going through the curve, uh, and it flipped over the right-hand rails. And if you saw any pictures of this thing, it really the, the, the bus took quite a beating. Uh, it was not a pretty picture. According to the most recent reports that I've seen so far, just to give an update on how the injured are doing, apparently a 65-year-old male passenger uh, is still in critical condition, but uh, most of the 11 injured passengers are in stable condition at this point. So that's how that is looking at this point. Um, You know, broader beyond the human toll of the accident, uh, it also highlighted concerns about Taiwan's tourism industry, specifically... And, you know, given similar tour bus accidents that we've seen over the last couple of years, including one that had no deaths but did have injuries just two weeks ago, uh, specifically the safety of low-cost travel options in Taiwan. Uh, The reason that we are talking about low-cost travel options and why some of those might have safety concerns associated with them is that it was reported that the tour bus driver had worked 18 days consecutively and uh, during those days, he worked 16 hours per day. Uh, and so there are, is some question as to how the tour uh, company that you know organized this whole thing was managing their employees and whether or not they were giving enough concern to the safety of their employees and whether or not they were really uh, equipped to perform their duties adequately. Since then, Premier Lin Chuan is calling on transport officials to immediately investigate low-cost tours in Taiwan. So this uh, issue is getting official scrutiny as well as scrutiny from the media. Uh, And the Directorate General of Highways yesterday said that it would discuss with the Ministry of Labor the best way to regulate the working hours of tour bus drivers. So a lot of issues uh, raised here uh, in addition to, of course, uh, the pure tragedy of this. Uh, Yuan Ming, uh, as, as you know, you've seen uh, the reporting go across your desk at the China Post. Uh, what does this raise for you? Well, I mean, as you mentioned, um, the premier uh, has ordered the transportation ministry to look into these budget tours and and their <clears throat> and to scrutinize the the bus tour operators. Um, and I believe already one has had um, its license revoked. So I think this d- demonstrates. Um, uh, the hard line the government needs to take on this issue, but if you consider like this tour bus, for instance, for instance, the one that crashed on Monday, uh, I mean the the it was coming back from um, Taizong from a cherry blossom tour all the way back north to tai- Taipei, and you know to get from the mountains of Taizong down 
and then all the way back up. This this takes several hours, but you know these low cost bus tours. You know these tours are you know they they really tax the the. The drivers and mm-hmm. uh, the daughter of the the driver, as we know, you know, you mentioned he was waking up at five or six in the morning, leaving at five or six in the morning, and returning at eleven at night. That's and, what the daughter was telling reporters. Yeah, 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 for for five or six for for five to six years. Mm-hmm. You know, this is ongoing, um, and you know, initially this this bus tour. The, the person operating it denied that. And, and mm. finally, and it was so outrageous he had to retract that statement. But um, this puts the uh, this puts the the scrutiny, of course, is on um, what the government can do to to help these bus drivers. Will they, you know, uh, there's scholars who say that you know maybe Taiwan can learn from other countries have have two drivers on each bus. But then you'll you'll probably hear people say um, that costs too much. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think this uh, issue is going to it's not gone away because uh, you had that major fire. Uh, a fire the the bus that caught on fire um, last July with the Chinese tourists and there was promises of investigations back then. Uh, of course, these situations are, are probably slightly different, but this issue hasn't gone away, and it's likely um, going to make uh, it's going to remain um, something that um, this issue of overwork uh, mm-hmm. is going to be something that uh, we need to focus on here now. I, I almost feel inclined that perhaps this should be seen primarily as an issue of overwork because, you know, just given how politicized Taiwan's tourism industry is, anytime one of these situations happen, it always invites extra scrutiny. And I just wonder, you know, you, you, you see an accident once a year on average every couple of years. It gets a, a ton of media coverage, but how much does that really tell us about how well this industry is actually working. I mean, there's hundreds of buses out on the roads every on any given day, and you know we don't they don't come up in the news, so presumably those rides go just fine. So I I, I wonder if in turning this into a referendum on the tourism industry specifically, if perhaps we're missing the point here. Well, I think overwork as an issue is 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 being. Uh, scrutinized a lot more, especially with the uh, labor regulations about this uh, one flexible day off, one one day off, the the forty hour work week. Um, I think this issue will be. Um, I think the and and with the recent strikes with the uh, la- um, with the Taiwan Railway Administration workers who struck uh, who who went on strike during Lunar New Year, um, that was also uh, framed as. An, an issue of overwork because of their their shifts being very very uh, difficult for them to maintain, you know their their personal and family life. So, um, what we've seen are a lot of sporadic uh, incidents, especially when there were a lot of mainland tourists uh, a couple of years ago, um, and these low budget tours. Um, whenever you know there were some accidents, we would see some media coverage. But now, um, I, I think. This issue is something, um, it, especially if it. I'm sorry to say this, but if it if it involves you know um, the citizens here, you know the victims are citizens here. It's going to raise the the, the scrutiny, and if it doesn't go away, um, it will raise the question about uh, government effectiveness. Hmm. Uh, now, Bill, I believe that you have had your own distinct experiences with Taiwan's tourism industry. What are your thoughts on all this? Well, to start, let me say that um, 
you know, people who live in glass houses shouldn't throw stones. I just read a report that uh, the number of people who died in the United States uh, last year in automobile accidents rose to 40,000. Right. After having declined for a few years before that. Mm. So clearly... Um, the roads are dangerous in any country. Roads are dangerous, which is, makes me more hopeful for the day when uh, perhaps we have all self-driving cars. But I remember uh, in 1986 going on a tourist bus with other students from our school on Yangminshan, a Chinese school that AIT runs, um, going down the Suao Highway, which was only in one direction because it was so narrow. And I remember people throwing up on the bus because there were no guardrails on – we were going north on the bus line and – I could look out and I was looking down hundreds of feet straight down because literally the fender of the bus, as it turned on curves, I was near the back, was over off the road. Hmm. And I don't know how the driver made it to this day. And people, you know, were screaming. It was Mm -hmm. so horrific. So... um. And when we all arrived, we said that would have never happened in the U.S. because lawyers would have been suing mm-hmm. left and right. Yep. So I, I always thought that perhaps in this regard, um, not to say that the U.S. doesn't have terrible problems itself, but I thought Taiwan should make some improvements. And my own experience is I've, since I've been in Taiwan, I've seen four uh, deaths involving motor scooters, uh, one of which I was personally involved in. I wasn't. I was in a car that was hit by a motor scooter rider, a young person who fell off either before he hit us with his motor scooter or um, or bounced off and fell under a truck and was crushed. And I just have a feeling that in terms of it's rare that you see traffic police really monitoring traffic and unsafe practices. So it's not only tourist buses, but in general – it seems like Taiwanese people, they're lovely people. They're honest and they're hardworking and they're renjun. And, you know, there's I can't say enough good about them. But when they get in cars, or when they get on motor scooters, or even these days on bicycles, when they're blasting down a bike path and you're a passenger making your way from a taxi through a whole row of motor scooters to get to the sidewalk, and that happens to be the area where the bike lane is, I've had people almost kill me because they're riding so quickly on their bicycles, their rental bikes, that they could hit people and hurt them. So I think there's a a broader question here of sort of traffic enforcement, Mm -hmm. uh, whether speeding or drunk driving or whatever it is. But there's just a lack of discipline, I think, overall in vehicular traffic of all kinds. Mm. Yeah, I once uh, went hiking with an American lawyer, and as we went, he would just point at a, a new thing on our trail and say, oh, in the U.S., that would be a lawsuit. In the U.S., that would be a lawsuit. In the U.S., that would be a lawsuit. So it's definitely a feature uh, uh, that we see around Taiwan in many places. Uh, we are going to wrap up that particular story uh, because we are running a little bit short on time. But very quickly, before we move on to our last segment for today... Uh, I do want to hit once again uh, some of the tourism numbers that we're seeing for the industry more broadly. Uh, actually, as we discussed very quickly on the show last week, there was some encouraging numbers. Overall, tourism in 2016 was up for Taiwan. In fact, it was up 2.4% year-on-year. 
it's not a huge bump. But uh, just keep in mind that is despite the much-reported uh, decline in uh, tourists from China. We also got a number to that. Apparently, that decline was 16.1% uh, from 2015. So we saw those increases, uh, I think, largely from uh, uh, other areas in the region, Japan, uh, South Asia, Southeast Asia. So, you know, it, and it was big enough to offset uh, the decline that we saw from China. Uh, the Thai administration is very quick to credit the various visa policies that they've rolled out. They've made it easier to uh, travel to Taiwan, uh, you know, basically uh, relaxing some visa restrictions. So that's what they're saying. It accounts for a, a, a lot of the gains right there. Over the weekend, we actually got a little bit of an update to those numbers. I, I think on Sunday, we got an even more clear picture of just uh, what the pattern of Chinese tourists looked like in Taiwan. Apparently... The uh, travel from China was down 18% uh, for the first part of the year, but after Thai took office, it was down a full 33% uh, from May. So kind of highlighting the fact that uh, really it looks like there is you know, a certain amount of control on the industry from the Chinese government something of a concerted effort to clamp down on that tourism, uh, to signal displeasure with Thai's cross-rate policy and everything that goes with that. Uh, 33% down since May. So, I mean, that that is very, very significant. Uh, and uh, Yuan Ming, I, I believe this is an issue that you follow somewhat, uh, the tourism industry and how it's affected by the various machinations of politics and uh, the Thai administration and all that. So based on these numbers, uh, you know, with 33% drop, is, is, is that a trend that we're likely to see continue? And does that offset some of the gains that uh, we were perhaps celebrating last week? Well, um, when we went to the Mainland Affairs Council weekly briefings, that was the question that we asked most often was, uh, what were the tourism numbers like? Uh, how many tur uh, Chinese tourists were visiting? Uh, I think the, the, the people there are uh, prepared for the, the larger drop-offs uh, this year. But if you look at the breakdown in the numbers, of course, the biggest, uh, the sig most significant drops are coming from those group tours. But the, the shrinkage in individual tours is, is quite significantly smaller. Hmm. So um, that that is of note, um, and just to 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 be um, to go back on the the increased tourism numbers, we're seeing uh, large increases in I believe Thailand. Uh, that's the that's been, that's kind of like the poster child that the tourism bureau has has uh, has. Uh, it's like the, the highlight, the highlighting yeah. of, of Thailand because they're. Their year-on-year -year increase is the highest, but we're also seeing a lot more uh, South Korean and Viet Vietnamese uh, tourists as well. But I th uh, overall, when you look at the, the drop in Chinese tourism rates, I think uh, the government is, um, is prepared for that. And um, they're going to um, be focusing, I guess, on, 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 on maintaining these individual uh, tourism. Uh, the, in, these individual tourists, you know, they come, um, they they may sp actually spend more than these group tours. Mm -hmm. yeah, so. All right. Well, this is an issue that we're going to keep our eyes on. It's, it's, it's really such a complicated issue because, I mean, even with increased numbers, you will hear some people say that you, for certain vendors, you really do want some of these group tours because they spend money on different things. And so, you know, they spread money around in a way that you don't get in other circumstances. 
You have other people saying that a lot of these tourism companies are really just funneling money back to Hong Kong and back to China, and it doesn't actually get plugged into the, the Taiwanese economy. So it's it's a really complicated thing, and it's so heavily politicized, it's hard to really get a handle on what's actually going on, because pretty much anybody who's an expert on this has some political stake in the optics of it all. Uh, so it's something that I've struggled to get uh, wrap my head around, but we have a little bit more data to go on, uh, and we're just going to have to see how it all shapes up in 2017. But on that note, we are running out of time, so uh, let's move on to our last story for the day. All right, and as promised, or maybe threatened, we are closing out the show talking about bird flu. And this has been a big week in bird flu news. An outbreak of a particular strain of the disease, that is the H5N6 strain, has been spreading in Hualien and Tainan and Jiayi and Yuanlin for the last several weeks, actually. The first case surfaced uh, at the beginning of this month when health workers discovered an H5N6 infected bird carcass on the side of a road. Since then, if you've been watching the news, what you would have been seeing is, you know, on, on this day... The disease spreads to another farm. That farm is forced to cull 3,000, 4,000 birds. A couple days go by, don't hear anything. Then it spreads to another farm. And, you know, another couple thousand birds uh, need to be culled. So this has just been kind of moving along for the last uh, couple of weeks or so. Earlier this week, uh, the central government really acknowledging that uh, this is something that has kind of reached a critical mass. They established an avian flu emergency response center that's been aimed at coordinating the efforts of various agencies tasked with fighting this disease. Unfortunately, though, uh, the disease has continued to spread and the government has gone a step further in the last couple of days. They have now banned the transportation of all poultry throughout the island temporarily. So clearly, health workers, health authorities, very concerned about this. Uh, currently, it looks like about a dozen farms have been affected. In addition to that, nearly 130,000 birds have been culled at this point. So big numbers we're looking at, uh, although I will say that uh, similar outbreaks have occurred in South Korea, in Japan, and those numbers are in the millions. So we're not quite there yet. To get a handle on exactly what we're talking about here, because, you know, H5N6, H5N2, these numbers all kind of run together, and it's kind of hard to keep track. So to lay it all out and uh, help us understand what is uh, particular and important to know about this specific strain of avian flu, I actually spoke with a Dr. Yen E. Lee. She is a medical officer at Taiwan CDC, just to kind of lay out what is going on with this particular outbreak and also exactly what the CDC and other relevant uh, government authorities are doing to stop the spread of the disease. So she started off our conversation explaining what in particular we need to know about H5N6. H5N6 is one of the um, avian flu and it's a novel influenza A virus. And um H5N6 has been detected in some farms um, in Taiwan, but so far we, we did not have any human cases infected by H5N6 in Taiwan. But um, uh, according to the information released by the uh, China Public Health Authority, there has been 70 
17 reported cases of human H5N6 infection in China, and most of them had exposure to the poultry. And uh, so far, uh, the information today suggests that um, H5N6 viruses can easily transmit between the poultry. Um, but the risk of transmission from the infected poultry to humans remains low. Although the infection rate of the H5N6 in humans is low, once infected, the fatality rate is high. Yeah, um, just uh, as mentioned, the 17 cases had severe infections and 12 of them died. So the mortality rate is um, up to 70%. Yeah, so, um, but I think um, the H5N6 viruses can cause severe infections to humans, but the, the risk of human infections with H5N6 is relatively low for general population. So uh, who will have the higher risk to get the infection? Um, I think it's the people who had high, um, people who deal with the poultry waste or the poultry farmers and personnel who calling the infect, infected poultry. Uh, these people will uh, expose uh, to the higher risk to get the infection. So um, the, uh, those uh, these uh, these people should take the Per, uh, precautionary measures, including wearing protect, uh, protective clothing and uh, surgical mask, gloves, or uh, the rubber shoes, and even the uh, goggles to reduce the risk of the infection. And but so far, the no human-to-human transmission has been reported yet. Now, there is actually another strain of bird flu that has been in the news recently. So we have more numbers for our audience uh, to remember right now. This other strain is known as H7N9. And this was a strain that was found uh, in a human. So this uh, is a human that contracted the H7N9 virus. But it looks like this is somebody that came from China uh, and uh, came to Taiwan. So it looks like it was not a disease that was contracted within Taiwan itself, what should our listeners know uh, about this strain of the disease? It looks like, you know, this has uh, spread perhaps much further uh, in China, but so far this is the only case that we know about in Taiwan. Is that correct? Uh, yes. Um, about the H5, H7 and my virus, um, the human infection with uh, this strain was first reported in China in 2013. And annual epidemics of uh, sporadic human infections with H7 and 9 in China has been reported since that time. And many of the many of the cases uh, infected with H7 and 9 exposure, had exposure to poultry, and people can get uh, infection by contacting the infected poultry. And um, but the H7 and 9 viruses can cause little or no illness in poultry, and the H7 and 9 only have li- very limited human-to-human transmission. So, um, uh, so far, no sustained human-to-human transmission has been detected so far. And um, I think um, for Taiwan, I think uh, because uh, the communications between Taiwan and China are very busy, 
So we do have the risk for imported cases because China currently experiences uh, its um, epidemic of H7N9 uh, human infections, and the H7N9 activities remains at its peak. So um, I think uh, what we can do is uh, we have the fever screening um, performed at the quarantine in our airport, uh, in our airport, and we encourage physicians to heighten the, the vigilance and ask patients with the influenza-like uh, patients with influenza-like symptoms about the travel history or if they have exposure to the poultry. Now, I'm pretty sure that there are some parts of the year that flu spreads more quickly than others. You know, that's why we call it flu season. When, at, at, at what time during this year can we relax about bird flu? When, when we hit the summer, does that mean that bird flu season is over and, and the problem is gone? Uh, or how, how does this change with the seasons? Um, well, for H7 and 9, uh, this, this, uh, this virus has the flu season. Uh, it usually occurs during the winter and the spring, but it's difficult to um, pro- predict when this, uh, this virus can be, um, this, this epidemic will stop because um, it, it depends on the source of the virus. I mean, um, um, the, if the weight market or the people still uh, slaughter the, the poultry and uh, the, the infected poultry and uh, uh, the infection, um, the virus, the H7N9 virus will still circulating in the community. So um, I think um, it, it depends on uh, why we stop the source of the virus, uh, uh, such as we ban the, uh, the transportation and slaughters of the poultry for one week. Yeah, that's, that's what we do to stop the, uh, the epidemic. All right, so just in closing, is there anything else that you think our listeners need to know about the spread of the flu this year or, or anything else that they should keep in mind uh, to protect themselves? Um, I think um, for the public, uh, we, what we need to do is uh, to avoid touching the uh, live birds and picking, uh, picking up the uh, dead birds. And we, um, we encouraged uh, the public to cook the eggs and poultry meat uh, thoroughly. And um, especially we need to practice a, a good uh, personal hygiene and wash the hands with uh, soap and water. And um, for, the, the higher, uh, for the high risk groups, uh, we close monitors uh, for this, uh, these uh, workers or farmers. And, if they contact with the infected poultry, we will uh, we will um, close monitor the health conditions um, for ten days, and we will also evaluate if they need uh, the antiviral prophylaxis. And um, for the travelers, um, the travelers visiting China are um, are also need to. Um, Avoid to uh, visit the the market, the wet market, uh, who where sells the live poultry, and um, also uh, only consume the uh, thoroughly cooked uh, poultry and eggs. Yeah, and yeah. If uh, if any if 
influenza-like illness symptoms develop when they arrive in Taiwan, um, just notify the airline, uh, uh, the quarantine officers in, air, in the airport, and we will um, assist them to to seek the medical attention. All right. Well, we have been speaking today to Dr. Yen E. Lee. She is a medical officer at Taiwan's CDC. Uh, Yen E., thanks so much for speaking with us. Uh, thank you. All right, and we're going to keep things moving. If you want to learn more about this topic, though, and it is a really important topic, I carried out one more interview than we actually are going to have time for for the show proper today. Uh, I interviewed a health official in Kaohsiung to get a sense for what health officials on the local level are doing to fight the disease, and that is a really important part of the story. You know, CDC kind of takes on the national, more medical aspect of this, but, you know, inspecting farms, inspecting markets, informing people at the city level what they need to do to stay vigilant, that is very important as well. And uh, that other interview uh, I did really lays out some of that stuff as well. Uh, I'm not going to put it in the show here, but if you want to hear it, It is on the Taiwan This Week podcast feed. So to find that, just go one episode down. It's right there, titled Stopping Bird Flu in Kaohsiung. So if you want to learn more, that is the place to go. But for now, we are just going to have to move on. All right, and that rounds out uh, the main portion for our show today, but we are going to move on to our bonus podcast story. Of course, uh, at the end of the show, we like to thank our podcast listeners by uh, including one additional story somewhat on the lighter end of things. This one's not exactly on the lighter end of things, but, you know, we'll try to find the lighter end to it. Uh, I said lighter end of things, but we're actually starting with an earthquake. There was an earthquake uh, last week in Tainan. Luckily... No deaths. There were four injuries, but this 5.6 magnitude earthquake did not uh, result in any deaths. Uh, One person in Tainan and three people in Kaohsiung sustained minor injuries. And there was about 50,000 households in eastern Tainan uh, without electricity for a bit. So, you know, as far as earthquakes in Tainan go, got off kind of light on this one. But if you were somebody who was plugged into social media, you might have thought it was a lot worse than it actually was because there was a photo going around being shared online uh, of a complete building collapse. You look at this building and it it, it reminds you very much of that Wei Guang Jilong. Is that the name of the building from a year ago? Yeah, it reminds you of that building. And there's a reason that it reminds you of that building, because it actually was that building. <laughs> somebody just took a photo of that building and kind of photoshopped it to make it look like there was another collapse this time around as well. Uh, apparently, if uh, if I'm getting all the details, I'm going to try to get the details on this right, but uh, my impression is basically somebody made this photo, he shared it with a couple of friends just as kind of a joke maybe, then one of those friends shared it a bit more broadly, and it took on a life of its own, and it made it to the desk of the uh, city government. And apparently, Mayor William Lai was not very happy uh, that this photo was going around and freaking everybody out, making everybody think that the uh, earthquake, once again, was much worse than it actually was. So, uh, Yuan Ming, apparently uh, you, 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 you found this story quite interesting. Uh, fake news, not just for America these days? Well, I mean, it's existed ever since news was around, I guess. But, uh, I mean... I remember last year we had a major typhoon, um, mm-hmm. and the build-up to it, uh, 
you know, those heavy rains uh, in Taipei, and uh, they were calling this the storm of at least the year. Mm-hmm. And then all of a sudden, we, we get these images on, online of these, you know, this, this picture of New Taipei, uh, the water almost cresting over, and it was from a year before. Ah, and, um, and so we've seen this before. Um, and the shock value, of course, is, 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 is prevalent. But I mean, I just wanted to relay just something, um, the fact that, um, of course, um, the shock value of seeing a building like that is is great, but you know other kinds of you've got also other kinds of fake news uh, in uh, that affect policy um, mm-hmm. um, on a longer term, of course. And in Taiwan, of course, this this is probably uh, most prevalent in this uh, pension reform debate, mm-hmm. and a lot of um, you know uh, retired uh, pensioners. Um, uh, passing around uh, information about uh, what the deductibles will be, what the pension rates will be, and of course um, the government coming in and saying these aren't the actual numbers. And so, uh, this is you know the the Tainan example is a bit uh, more of shock value, but of course you have uh, other ones um, that are floating around. Mm-hmm. Uh, so. Bill is, uh, you know, uh, you, you, you and I have talked a little bit about uh, our growing dismay at various events around the world. Is uh, would you add to that list of uh, dismaying news, fake news? Uh, <laughs> well, the problem we have uh, in Washington is that what is called fake news is often the truth. And um, One so, man's it's fake news is another person's alternative news. Yes, another person's uh, morning tweet. So um, I I think uh, particularly the press conference that uh, President Trump gave yesterday in which he accused the media on the one hand of reporting leaks um, uh, as fake news and yet saying the the leaks were going to be investigated because they were revealing information that was classified. Mm. Uh, This contradiction he can't seem to get his mind around it. Mm-hmm. And as a consequence, um, fake news is now being used as an excuse for basically saying, uh, don't believe anything the media says. Mm-hmm. So I think it's gone in a different direction, and it's unfortunate. I think that we just found uh, our new tagline for the show. Uh, fake news, don't believe anything the media says. <laughs> But believe some of what we say. Well, not, we get some things right occasionally. You know, just just look for the nuggets of truth here and there. All right. Well, uh, I think Bill and I are going to go off and get a stiff drink and cry about the world. But we won't bum you all out with it anymore. We're going to wrap up the show for today. That is it for the show. Please do join us again next time. Taiwan This Week broadcasts every Friday evening during the 8 p.m. hour right here on ICRT FM 100, around about 8.15 p.m. Although, of course, this evening uh, we are broadcasting a little bit later than usual. Next week we will be back to our usual time, as I said, right at 8.15. Uh, you can also find an extended version of the show online at the ICRT website, on iTunes, a couple of other places as well. Signing off from the ICRT studio, I am Keith Manconi, joined by Yuan Ming Chow. Yuan Ming, good to have you back. Great to be here. Bill Stanton. Bill, always a pleasure. Thanks for inviting me back. And thank you all for listening. See you again next time on Taiwan This Week.